Welcome back to the Digital Orthopedics Podcast, brought to you by the Digital Orthopedics Conference San Francisco, or DOCSF, and the Department of Orthopedic Surgery at UCSF, University of California, San Francisco. In this third of three podcasts from DOCSF Venture, our virtual event held in January 2022, and focusing on the digital health investments in musculoskeletal care from 2021. We had the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Christian Manau, the CMO of Surgeline, Dr. Ken Trouder, founder of DocSpera.com, Dr. Rick Angelo, former president of the AANA and now CMO at Caliber.ai, and Danny Goal, MD, CEO and co-founder of Precision OS. Please join our very own Ashley Libby Diaz as she moderates this panel on the DocSF Venture Virtual Stage. Good evening, everyone. My name is Ashley Libby Diaz. I am the co-chair of DocSF Venture, and we are going to switch to our panel discussion. This is the discussion about the OR of the future. And since my co-chair, Nancy, and I first started talking about this panel way back in August, I've been so excited to bring this to you. So I'd first like to start by just quickly introducing our panel members, and then we will dive into the conversation you have all been waiting for. So with us, we have Danny Goel, who is a practicing shoulder surgeon in British Columbia. He is a clinical professor of orthopedic surgery at the University of British Columbia, and he is the founder and chief executive officer of Precision OS. Joining Danny uh, and I, we have Ken Troner, who is a practicing orthopedic joint surgeon. He is also an inventor and a serial entrepreneur with a long history in surgical technology development. He co-founded a National Engineering Center in Biophotonics for the National Science Foundation, started multiple companies, and has 75 issued patents to his name. Also joining us is Rick Angelo. He's a retired orthopedic surgeon. He's the chief medical officer of Caliber Labs. He's also the past president of the Arthroscopy Association of North America and the Orthopedic Learning Center, as well as the principal investigator of the Anna Copernicus Initiative. And last but not least, we have Chris Seminoff, a practicing spine surgeon, associate tenured professor of orthopedic surgery and neurosurgery, as well as chief of spine surgery at the University of Illinois, Chicago. Chris is also the co-founder of Holosurgical and chief medical officer of Surgaline. Thank you all so much for being here with us tonight and joining this conversation. So when we think about the OR of the future, there's so much to think about and talk about. And so let's start by addressing where is the OR heading in orthopedic care? Danny, I'm going to kick it off to you first. Can you get us started, please? Thank you, Ashley. And it's uh, wonderful to be here with everybody. Thank you, uh, Stefano and Nancy, for having me part of this uh, panel. So, you know, it's it's an excellent question. And when I think of it from a shoulder surgeon's perspective, I've been paying attention to what's happened in my specialty that's really moved the needle and where I see it going in the future. And what I can say is the technology really is advancing towards what I've been feeling myself is wanting to do, which is moving towards more of an ambulatory surgical center type practice. 
And so for me, the OR of the future really revolves around uh, having the ability to do my procedures in an outpatient setting, whether it be arthroscopy or arthroplasty, both total and reverse total shoulders. <laughs> thank you. Ken, why don't you share next? Uh, sure. Your... I also want to thank you, Ashley, for including me in, the, in this discussion and Stefano for including me. Uh, my experience is tempered through that of the, the total joints, total joint world where we too are experiencing this transition to uh, ambulatory setting and also uh, this transition to more of a value-based filter on what we do. And I think that the biggest change is the, the full digitization or digitalization of all our processes for leaner, more efficient processes and better quality outcomes, really with an examination of all of our legacy processes in the past to now make them more efficient and really eliminate many of the prior inefficiencies and, and then also the second piece would be the, the collection of data regarding everything we do and outcomes that allows us then to start to standardize best processes with better information. Great. Rick? I uh, am confident that uh, AI is going to work its way into the OR and change much of what we do. As we are able to harness the technology, it's going to bring more consistent outcomes uh, to the OR. Patient safety is going to be um, uh, much improved and whatnot. It won't be an easy uh, walk and an easy challenge, but uh, there's, there's too many potential applications for it not to really have a significant impact in the OR. And Chris, why don't you take us home? Where is the OR headed? Uh, thanks a lot, Ashley. So I, you know, everything that the panel said, I, I for sure will second. I think it's important for the audience to sort of get a little more granular about what actually is the OR, right? We talk about it as this magical uh, place and has been certainly for, I think, all the panel members who are practicing surgeons. But, you know, the way I look at the operating room, I actually break it down. So, you know, you have the operating room table with the surgeon, which is the most visual part of the operating room. But then you have obviously the anesthesiologist with their uh, their own workstation. And then you have everything else that's happening in the operating room. You have the circulating nurse, m multiple people walking in and out of the room. You have uh, different types of equipment. So when you talk about the OR of the future, you actually have to break the operating room down. And there are uh, a number of companies that are doing just that either by you know, placing cameras in the operating room and tracking motion uh, of uh, individual players or uh, actually looking at the individual subsystems and sort of going to everything that Rick, Ken, and Danny were talking about, and that's getting data out of the operating room, right? So whether it appears a little bit fragmented to me now is there are multiple parties trying to get a bite uh, at that operating room from different angles, but, but the reality is the operating room of the future will be a place that leverages the data and it has not so far. So I think we have a long way to go. I know we have a lot of opinions on data from this group and uh, Chris has teed us up nicely. Anybody want to add anything about collecting more data? In the OR. Yeah, I can start there and actually build on what Rick was talking about with artificial intelligence. And uh, so, you know, right now, there's no good way to measure data in the post-operative setting. So, you know, we rely on, so there's mechanisms to measure data in the OR, which I think we can talk about in some detail, but are, you can't measure outcomes unless you gather the patient-specific data. And right now, one of the limitations I see there's that we rely on the patient to collect data, where we should empower everybody that's surrounding that patient to help support collecting patient-related outcomes. And I think if we're going to close the loop on really having rich data to link performance, surgical performance to outcomes, 
and actually help standardize care, I think that would be a mechanism by which we need to think of how we're collecting data, not just collecting data. And there's an enormous amount of efforts underway with regards to sensors. This is where we actually start to intersect with the whole consumer world and the wellness space because there's innumerable companies with various sensors that allow for functional engagement with or assessment of function. Plus, we also have implants that are now starting to have sensors placed in them, et cetera. And there are a lot of patient engagement tools plugging into the various platforms. So I do think that that is an area that we're going to see a lot of data from that will be able to be mined for your insights. I think it's interesting as as far as the AI, at least as far as orthopedics, many of the applications, natural language processing, et cetera, improved diagnosis, uh, prognosis based on lots and lots of data are uh, improving and, and good groundwork has been laid there. One of the things that I think is really very new, though, is bringing AI into the actual surgical procedure and and uh, Caliber that I've been working with has, has made good progress in the sense that they're actually taking data from video feeds and able to classify that algorithms are able to model those behaviors. And once you can do that, then you open the door to be able to track procedures. You can template surgeries and toggle on, toggle off and overlay that might guide you preferred anchor sites, et cetera. So I think uh, the move of AI into the actual operating room and actual performance of surgery is going to have some very, very exciting benefits down the road. And not the least of which is going to be a more consistent surgery. If you look at uh, Chris and Danny and Ken, they're at the top of their game. And if you could bring some templated surgery to the masses and say best practices based on gentlemen like these are such and such and could actually template those surgeries, that's going to be a a dramatic game changer, I think. I think, at least from a spine surgeon perspective, figuring out who to operate on, meaning who would benefit from the actual surgical procedure. So actually taking a step back uh, from what Rick is talking about, that's using, uh, you know, advanced algorithms inside the operating room. For us, that that's sort of what will make a big difference for the uh, practice of spine care is, you know, outcomes are what they are and they can certainly be better. And I think everyone agrees that one of the main drivers of improving outcomes is identifying individuals that'll benefit, first of all, from a surgical procedure. And then once you identify those individuals, you'll select the actual procedures that they should have. And, you know, there's two types of data since we're talking about data. One is all the demographic and related data, you know, weight, height, medical history, et cetera. So that's in the one bucket. And the other bucket is the data that you obtain from the actual patient-derived images, CT scans, MRIs, x-rays, right? Two different types of approaches to analyzing that data. You cannot win by only analyzing one or the other. So you need a system to analyze both. And I think the company, uh, that is able to uh, analyze both efficiently is going to be uh, able to lead the way in identifying patients that are actually uh, uh, good candidates for surgical management. And that's that's where we've been playing the the need to optimize the patient, as you, especially as you transition to the ambulatory setting, to have patients both optimized for surgery and also where you're able to uh, successfully risk stratify to have the right population that can be successfully treated in the ambulatory setting is absolutely critical. 
And then extending that even further, it's really important that you use data and have total transparency so that this whole supply chain of both instruments and implants also be provided in an efficient way. And the models we have in terms of how we provide and supply implants currently with the rep model, collecting information, all of this will become automated and digitized. And that's currently underway from a lot of different efforts. I will say that the, uh, in the total joint space, uh, going back to your earlier point, is robotics. One of the very exciting points about robotics is the data and the rich data sets it provides about all the details of what we do, especially you take total knee replacement in terms of the balancing, et cetera, to then correlate with outcomes and really start to establish what are the best practices and impact on um, the outcomes. And I think that's one of the really exciting things about robotics as we start to see this early adoption. Some of the new things as far as capturing uh, post-operative data with uh, sensors and, you know, we used to rely predominantly on physical therapists, but we're going to get a ton of good, valuable information and data that uh, really starts to give us a much better idea of what the outcomes really are. Just building on something that Ken uh, said earlier and just what you're talking about, Rick, with you know, with sensors, it doesn't capture the entire patient journey, though, in the post-operative space, because you can have a knee that doesn't flex or extend fully, but have a really satisfied patient. So how do you, how do you think of that when we talk about reinforcing the data set from performance outcome and to really democratizing that specific care episode? That is a huge thing. And in fact, uh, just looking at patient-reported outcomes and their relationship to what we know traditionally as outcome measures, ASES, whatever, that are basically more objective in a sense, that's going to be an issue that we're going to have to solve. I mean, how many rotator cuff patients have a failed cuff tear, but are wildly enthusiastic and are sending all their neighbors for surgery because they've done so well. So that's a challenge. Having the ability to actually, to to Danny's point, to understand which patient will have what outcome, right? So that's kind of this precision medicine, predictive medicine that, you know, I think we all hope we can attain. And, you know, for for that to happen, uh, and as Danny said, you may have a sensor that says patient's happy, but the knee doesn't bend. And like, first of all, does that matter? Yes or no? And I don't want to get into into that one. But, But, you know, our the ability to collect the right data is also something we need to discuss, right? So it's not just collecting, but like, what are we collecting? How are we collecting? And why are we collecting? So sounds like a lot of need for data pre-op while you're making the decision intraoperatively and data postoperatively. I'm curious, as you all sit here today, talk about what you think the biggest changes are going to be in the OR in the next five, maybe 10 years. Where is that big change going to come? Chris, you want to start us off this then? Sure. Yeah. I, I think, you know, you know, low-laying fruit first, and then, you know, at the end of that 10-year mark, it's uh, no surgeon in the operating room. Everything's happening autonomously by some robot, right? So I think those are the very two extremes of where we are today and, you know, some some future, which may or may not happen. But I think, you know, low-lying fruit is the decision-making support for the surgeon, Right. So right now you have a surgeon, at least this is from a, from a spine or neurosurgical perspective where, you know, you as a surgeon are responsible for analyzing all the data, you know, images on a screen, interpreting that and making surgical decisions. But, you know, I, you know, very, very near term here, I'm talking within a year or two, uh, you will have a lot of support, meaning before 
the image hits your eyes and has to be interpreted by you, that image is actually interpreted by a computer and some suggestions are already made, a plan's formulated like uh, Rick was saying, and uh, you know, suggestions of how to execute that plan are given to you on a platter and then the surgeon simply decides whether he accepts or does not accept that plan. So I think that's low-laying fruit that's right around the corner and I don't want to speculate on the too distant of a future. I'll take a stab at this as well, building on you know what Chris said. I think that every procedure has critical and subcritical steps. And as humans, we're prone to error. And then connecting where we're prone to error to a critical step is where I see the ability for technology to either augment or enhance my ability to execute that step. And Ken talked about robotics. Robotics is a perfect example of where we uh, have error when we're, say, balancing a knee, for example, because we make it on how the knee balances. I'm not a knee surgeon, but I'll use shoulder as an example. My ability to put the guide pin in the glenoid for a total reverse total shoulder is the most critical step of that procedure. And there's technology now that allows me to augment what I see and perhaps what I do in the future. And that's one procedure. So I see that sort of as an overlay into every surgical procedure in orthopedics, either enabling or augmenting my ability to execute in the OR. Yeah. So I, I think that I agree with um, just to extend it, the, um, the ability to have that, that feedback loop between real detailed information of the steps that we're performing, especially on, uh, in the joint replacement, with the outcomes to establish best practices in a really nuanced tactical way, I think is something that is going to be very impactful. And I also think, though, that this layer of, and I know Chris is working in the space of really understanding all of the flows in the operating room. We're going to start to understand performance in the OR and teams and OR optimization, especially in ambulatory setting where time is so critical, so that efficiency and processes, I think, will be absolutely much leaner as we go forward and look back in a couple of years. And I think that'll eventually roll back to the, the acute care facilities. Actually, I think uh, the, the training is going to be tremendously impacted by these technologies as well. Uh, we've learned uh, long ago that novices compared to more experienced surgeons, novices tend to do about the same number of steps. It doesn't really discriminate, but it's the enactment of errors that really makes a difference and the ability to identify errors, correct those, et cetera, and Danny's done a lot of work on this, but to be able to, to do that in a setting that the patient is not at risk and, and there's no morbidity associated with that, cadavers have gotten us a long way, but, uh, but we need new tools to train and uh, with less time available for residents to spend in the OR, et cetera, et cetera. And the more these technologies get sophisticated, our ability to train is going to be more important. Otherwise, we're going to have technologies that are misapplied. Yeah, if I can build on that, I guess, Rick, to your point, and that's sort of what we're doing. At, that is what we're doing at Precision OS, which is a virtual reality-based company. And if you look at the problem, our ability to access experiential opportunities has been limited, has never been scalable. So access to cadavers, even teaching safe medical device companies, and the time it takes to actually train and onboard, whether it be a nurse, a physician, surgeon, or a medical device rep. And we're seeing some of the impact of that now with shortages of people and hospitals closing you know, all over the country, for example. So how are we going to address this need of training people, onboarding people sooner, but also much more effectively and efficiently without some other mechanism in place? Actually, one of the really important things I think about this is that 
as we try to use synthetic experience to train people, we have to be very careful that we are actually, in point of fact, training them. And that transfer of training to the operating room actually occurs because some work has been done that shows that trainees maybe get better on the simulator but actually don't have skills that transfer to the operating room. So there's going to be a lot of very exciting ways to try to harness this synthetic experience, but we still have to be sure that that actually translates to a better trained surgeon. So if we're enabling and augmenting surgeons in the OR to do critical cases, how does that impact intraoperative teaching of the future generations of surgeons? Because I think that if I was in the OR with a mixed reality headset on, I would be less likely to pass that off to the trainee, which again is a critical procedure that they also have to learn. Chris, I'm curious if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah, always challenging, Danny, your point, because, you know, training of the future generation has always been, you know, somewhat controversial in terms of when, how, who, right? Whose mother is this, et cetera. So there are a lot of issues around doing it right. And I think as we introduce more and more technology into the operating room, there is a need for the trainee, not only to know how to do the procedure, like Rick is saying, but also how to operate the technology. I think the simulator world is perfect for allowing trainees to get you know up to speed on this new technology and some of them are probably better than some of the uh, surgeons that that have not had exposure to it but um, you know this has to be i think something the academy mandates or, or you know does a, a process around of, of actually how do we deliver training to the trainees in the age of you know shorter and shorter ability to, to focus on that during our practice right so we only have so many hours in a day and uh, and there's just so much more to do. So that's another element of it too. Thanks for weighing in. So I would love, I'm sure our audience is really curious to hear from you on different technologies that are exciting to them and exciting to you. So would love to turn the conversation to some specific technologies that each of you are experienced in, expert in. So let's let's start with AI. And Rick, if you could talk to us, what do you see AI's role being in creating efficiencies and improved outcomes in the OR of the future? Yeah, I think there are a number of things, actually. There are already digital tools that measure in very, very much less time than it takes us to measure in any standard way that we would now. So we can measure accurately, much less time. There are marker technologies that allow us to identify a point that doesn't change, even though it's just digital, and we don't waste time reacquiring that point, whether it be where an ACL guide wire is placed for a, for a tunnel, et cetera. So, and, you know, I think as the AI comes into the operating room, uh, we've talked a lot about data and big data and whatnot, but for the, for the OR, it's really supervised data. And what is a challenge is to make sure that that data is good and accurate because if it's not, it biases the models that you create and downstream that creates a very, very big problem. So it's not the massive unsupervised data that gets scanned for patterns. 
it's supervised data, and that's uh, that's has to be done very, very carefully. Anybody like to build or pick up on that AI and supervised data? So I think if I can add to that, Rick, so I think the idea of collecting data is very, very attractive, but what does it cost for me to collect data? And I think that's one thing that, you know, certainly we're, you know, in a price sensitive scenario, I think all we, we all are. How do we go about using these technologies when some of the cost is, we haven't discussed that yet, but could be a barrier to one of the things we want to execute? Especially on the outcome side where there's not necessarily an economic impact of that. And most of these quality or value-based systems tend to be threshold-based outcomes as opposed to, and you had mentioned, Rick, in some earlier discussions about the need to label some of these data sets, et cetera, and the work that has to go into that. So I think, I think that's a good point and should set some expectations about how long it may take to start to get some of this meaningful information. Yeah, but also like, you know, actually to your initial questions regarding uh, artificial intelligence generally, my view is, you know, we're going to, I think, make a lot of strides uh, in the field. The the, the quicker the computer is able to learn anatomy, uh, just like a human trainee does, back to the trainee question, I think the faster we can start engaging those systems inside and outside the operating room, right? So first things first, and, you know, when you start surgical residency, the point is to learn it not only anatomy, but to learn surgical anatomy. Similarly here, the computer also has to learn surgical anatomy. So what we've spent you know, a bunch of years on is actually teaching the computer anatomy from initially a medical image, but then uh, I believe uh, Ken was the one who said it, uh, that there are a lot of, you know, maybe uh, Rick was, a lot of camera systems that are also used to capture live uh, images of the anatomy intraoperatively. And, you know, so it's a combination of the factors where you start with um, a medical imaging data and you pair that with actually live images from the surgical field itself. And once the computer learns the anatomy in those two scenarios, I think it'll be a very powerful tool. But that's not necessarily like a 10-year thing. I mean, I, I think that future is now. Thanks for addressing AI. Chris, since you have the mic, so to speak, love for you to touch on what you think the possibilities are with augmented reality in the operating room. Yeah. So, you know, augmented reality, I think, as you know, means a lot of different things to different people. You know, it's anything from Pokemon Go on your, maybe not my, but my son's phone. Of course, I would never do that. All the way through these, you know, headsets and different types of glasses, et cetera. So, you know, you hear a lot of companies outside of the healthcare field uh, investing heavily uh, into uh, augmented reality. And, you know, I think paradoxically, I, I think health has been doing a good job of keeping up with the rest of tech as far as AR is concerned. Now, I think the one caveat is we cannot, I don't think at least, have these technologies, whether it's AR, robotics, or AI, sort of in their own individual silos, right? These are complementary technologies, they have to talk to each other and work together and leverage uh, the, the things that, are, that make them great, or I think you'll have an incomplete system. And the, the example I was just talking about in AI, you know, the computer learning anatomy, well, what's the best medium to display that information to the surgeon? Well, it'll be some type of mixed reality, virtual reality, augmented reality, probably depending on the use case. And then how do you communicate with that robotic device? Well, once again, it'd be, you know, a combination of AR and AI. So 
you know, that user interface is very important, obviously, for the for the physician or for the healthcare provider. And AR does, I think, do a, a nice job of, of, you know, kind of balancing between the real world and this virtual world. So, you know, AR is here. It's not going anywhere. It will continue on getting better. The good news is that the innovation is also happening across the continuum of technology companies. So there's a lot of dollars being pumped into it. I think we as surgeons will end up benefiting from that as uh, so will our patients. But I think, you know, the key thing is to just say, hey, it's not just an AR company or just an AI company. I think, you know, you need to, the whole, whole picture to be a complete system. And if I could follow up to that, I'm curious, uh, as a spine surgeon, where are you particularly excited about AR in spine surgery? Yeah, spine is... I don't want to say that other fields are not tough. So I just stopped myself because the, my colleagues on the panel, of course, have hard jobs as well, but I want to say spine is tough and predominantly tough in terms of visualization, right? So you need to make small precision movements and visualization is challenging. And, you know, I do think that the augmented reality technologies taken together, once again, AI or robotics will really um, enhance the surgeon's ability to see. And I think once the surgeon sees, it de-risks the surgery, not only for the patient, but also for the surgeon. And if the surgeon is practicing or doing the surgery in a more comfortable, so-called less stressful a situation, I think that also translates to better performance, less errors, fewer mistakes, right? Yeah. I'm curious because we've talked about minimally invasive surgery before, and I know that's something many of you practice. I'm curious, what about what Chris is saying about AR speaks to you and, and your particular specialties? Danny, is there anything in shoulder? So, I mean, shoulder arthroscopy obviously is the best example of minimally invasive surgery. But minimally invasive surgery can mean more than just the incision. It can mean the actual procedure itself. So with the move to, and I'll speak about shoulder in this situation, stemless implants, for example, are in my mind, minimally invasive surgery as well, because you're removing less bone and you're, you're traumatizing the area of the body less for the patient, which leads to less pain and perhaps sooner discharge. So I think for me, the movement, at least in shoulder, has been towards that minimally invasive approach across the spectrum not just the incision. Actually, I might just make a brief comment on what uh, Chris was talking about. There's pretty good data that we have limited attentive resources at our command. And the more of those resources are consumed with the regular parts of the procedure, uh, trying to get oriented, et cetera, et cetera, the less attentive resources we have to pick up clues that hey, this is a potential for penetrating a cortex, for doing this or for doing that. And so if AR decreases the consumption of those resources because it makes it easier for us to see the anatomy, as Chris was talking, uh, not only is it going to be uh, less stressful for the surgeon, but the odds are that it probably at some point is going to translate into fewer errors because they're going to be more attuned and attentive to things that could go wrong and uh, ward those off. Yeah. Do you think the challenge is creating an economic justification for the increased visualization, you know, safety and creating the use cases where people are willing to invest in having that type of uh, augmented vision in procedures that tend to be relatively high volume. Now I can see in the case of your glenoid placement, 
but is the technology AR or is it a robotic technology that relies on some form of imaging combined with the robotics for placement in a reliable way? And there's a lot of ways to, to achieve some of these goals. And I think that um, people will be coming at from a lot of different angles and the investment is, is tricky to find to justify those investment dollars sometimes. Yeah, but you know, I, I agree with you. I think these are big ticket items, at least initially, right? And now the question is, do they follow the trend of what happens in tech where things get cheaper with time? Not as optimistic that in medical technology, things get cheaper with time, but I do think that they can get better with time to where, uh, Ken, your, your main point is like, is the expenditure worth the, uh, and what is that thing we're measuring, right? Is it uh, better outcomes? Is it uh, shorter surgical times, you know, fewer resources? Versus uh, spend somewhere else, right? So, what's the economics of that? What's the health economics of that? I think that's a very important question, and I think anyone designing a system these days needs to almost put that as, a, as something before they even start deploying systems. They need to know what those answers are, right? So, that's a very important question, I think, because it does. If you put the filter robotics, it, it's hard to see patients coming to the doctor because they're using an augmented system but people are coming to their doctors because they want a robotic system. And there's clearly a marketing value to that. And the robotic systems now, you could argue, do add some time. There's a lot of data showing it adds some time that it definitely, that high for high volume, there's some value in terms of limiting some of the outliers for lower volume type um, surgeons, but, but the robotics has that element to it. And uh, things like AI may not be as sexy to, no, for sure. But yeah, I think what if we do our job correctly and not to distant future, people will get the same outcome, whether they're in Lima, Ohio or you know, New York City, right? And that's because technology will be the main driver of the outcome. It will not be individual dependent, right? So I think when you're talking about advertising now, I, I totally agree with you. People have billboards that say, hey, robotic surgery, but that doesn't really translate to, hey, this is the best outcome in, 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 in this universe, right? So the robotic robotics will democratize those outcomes with time to where it doesn't matter where you go. You're, you're going to know that you're getting the same care because of the technology being essentially the same. Yeah, I was just being specific to you know, the, the challenges I think AR may, might have. Yeah, yeah, for sure. No, I agree. You've talked a lot about ASCs and whatnot. I often wonder, these technologies are expensive. How do you see it relating? Are the ASCs going to be late to the game because of the expense? Or are they going to be able to be involved in some of these newer technologies earlier? Or how do you see that? I mean, I think uh, the movement towards efficiency and footprint has a critical role to play in these outpatient surgical centers. So robotics, you know, let's assume that it does have what Chris said, the ability to democratize care and really facilitate those critical components of a case. If you can minimize the footprint of a robotic system, uh, I mean, we're all going to be looking at efficiency in space as a, as a driver to move to outpatient surgery. And I'm not talking just ASC, I'm just talking outpatient in general. So I think anything that minimizes the footprint would be cheaper and would be accessible. So whether it be robotics or augmented reality, if the cost is uh, equivalent or less uh, than what you would do otherwise from an outcome perspective, then I think it's worth it, or at least something strongly to consider. 
I'm curious if you could speak more uh, since robotics has come up uh, quite a bit and now we're talking about efficiency and, and ASC. Where do you see the possibility for robots creating efficiencies in orthopedic care in the future? So uh, there's where we are today. And so again, tempered by the fact that I'm in the total joint realm. So at this point in time, the use of the robot does require you placing reflectors and some additional pins and there's registration, et cetera. But I'm firmly convinced that over time, a lot of those will be uh, additional innovation will come along that, that prevents or provides real-time registration and AI so that we don't have to maintain those reflectors and perhaps eliminate pins. So um, I think that some of these inefficiencies will go away. I think that also that with any system, there's a learning curve. And as you start to then orchestrate the whole team and you can gain the, um, there's efficiency in several different ways. There's the reproducibility of the, the procedure itself and knowing exactly what you want to be doing and to deliver that in terms of alignment and the cuts and the balancing, et cetera. And then there's also the elimination of the supply chain issues by eliminating so many of the tools that need to be sent to the operating room. And there's a gained efficiency there that's sort of an intangible and then the improved outcomes. So I think we're going to see a lot of data coming out. And from the standpoint of the payers, that there's there's plenty of data now showing that um, that the uh, the outcomes does reduce some of these um, outlier results. Uh, and complications in some lower volume providers. So I think we're going to, which is driving the interest on the part of payers and especially self-insured. So I think we will, it's only going to continue to improve. And I think the second part is as we see adoption within training programs and the fact that the public really is asking for it, when a patient comes to you and says, hey, are you using the robot? It's hard to talk them out that, oh, the other is just equivalent. So I, I, I believe it's, it's imminent that we will see broad adoption, and I think it will become more efficient uh, over time. That's clearly justified. Thanks for addressing that. Before we move into other topics, Danny, I would love to hear your thoughts on virtual reality and how uh, that can shape the OR of the future. So it actually uh, dovetails very nicely into our discussion about robotics because one of the barriers is the learning curve. And how do you learn a robotic system without traveling to it? Well, you can now deliver that in a technology like VR. The way I think about virtual reality is it's, it's a really novel way to learn because it's active learning. And it's not just active, it's active and experiential, which means when you put a headset on, there's a wow factor, but moving past the wow factor, can we deliver and objectify performance, actual surgical decision-making for the first time with no risk and no harm to a patient. That's for me, is the power of VR because you can walk somebody through a robotic system, actually have them do a procedure, and then quantify their decision-making at each and every step, which then makes education even better for onboarding, not only just the surgeon, but the entire team. So I think one of the barriers, and I'd be interested in Ken's experience or others in the uh, panel, with robotics, but I don't have any experience with robotics, but I know that if I do a new case with a new implant, that the entire team, unless they're well-versed, that will add time to the entire procedure. And so this is where VR in my mind is a scalable solution that allows you to not only learn a procedure well, but also then be more apt at learning and understanding the medical device as well. Ashley, one of the challenges uh, with VR to date has been 
the expense of haptics because if if you don't have some realistic sense of tactile uh, feeling, it limits the richness of the experience and haptics have been very, very expensive, although that's changing. And as that changes, it gets more to what Danny's talking about, about the we call synthetic experience that it has to be has to be like having done another five cases, even though it is uh, on a VR system or or whatever. And so, bringing that entire experience will translate to training being better and improved and going to the operating room. Thank you uh, for addressing that and. One final question, other technologies, 3D printing, machine learning, any, where are the opportunities there uh, as we think about what lies ahead for the orthopedic OR? I can grab that. So, you know, you mentioned uh, Ashley 3D printing and, you know, it's, uh, I think this, this whole panel is about buzzwords, right? We talked about VR, AR, AI, machine learning. So 3D printing would we wouldn't be complete without it. But but in all seriousness, I think you know the, the ability to 3D print uh, or whatever other manufacturing method you may choose, personalized implants is something that'll be uh, very significant at least in the spine space. I'm, I'm not sure for the uh, or, or other ortho guys if that's their share the same sentiment. But you know I, when we talked about AI, I mentioned you know that the computer has to learn anatomy and has to learn surgical anatomy. One of the benefits or side effects, if you will, of the computer learning anatomy is that it can also learn how to uh, design an implant for that particular patient, right? Because it'll be patient-specific. So at least in the spine space, there's a lot of interest in patient-specific implants. The issue has been, how do you make them efficiently uh, without, you know, a lot of human interaction, manipulation, engineering time. And it's a non-scalable business if it's not autonomous. So having the computer learn anatomy, so using this AI ML uh, environment uh, enables for the creation of implants that are patient-specific, which will be, I think, uh, an important deal going forward. As a technology, I think 3D printing is, we're going to see a lot of newer instrumentation. I think you'll see it in, especially in trauma, where people are able to leverage the capabilities of 3D printing to do more complex design, where we end up doing more modulus matching implants, et cetera, that are resistant to some of the mechanisms of failure, et cetera. And so I think we're going to see a lot more innovation as people learn to use the, the full capability of the 3D printing for titanium. And it will also, um, and inexpensively, it allows for scaled production and a very quick regulatory process to get some of these to market. And so I think actually it, it should be very exciting over time to see, especially in the tumor space and in various other spaces where you want more customized products, where we start to remove these big bulky metal parts and start to now introduce uh, componentry that's more modulus matching and greater ingrowth surfaces, et cetera. There's been a lot of the challenges and regulatory headway is now um, being a little more standardized to, to get these products through. And it's going to be exciting. Thanks for touching on that as well. And yes, we are about the buzzwords aiming to <laughs> deliver for our Another thing and, uh, to comment on is VR yeah. um, spine world. You know, the, 
the surgical microscopes, and there's a project we've been involved with where they're replacing the exoscopes are replacing um, where it's basically 3D cameras now with VR headsets to replace traditional large operative microscopes. But the exciting part is when you start to have a digital imaging elements, the ability then to start to look beyond the visual spectrum, because now you've gone digital. So you can start to look in the infrared or in the ultraviolet, and then to use augment that with various fluorophores or photochemical stains. And I think that's going to become very exciting. It, you may see that for the neurosurgeons and spine surgeons doing less invasive surgery and really opens the door for new adults. Absolutely. So Ken, do you see a place where 3D printing would be done perioperatively? I mean, that's for me, that's if I was to think pie in the sky, that if I was doing a procedure in the shoulder and I could print off a base plate for a glenoid, you know, that for me would be where the future could be. Uh, it's mostly funny because of yeah. inventory issues, supply chain issues that we're seeing right now across the world. Uh, you know, should COVID happen again, this would have significant impact for the positive. We could do that. So it's a great question. And it's talked about in a lot of the futurists, you know, you see the various discussions about the future of surgery. And one of the things they show is 3D printing in the OR. And what you're really talking about is distributed manufacturing. And, and when you say 3D printing, it's sort of synonymous with digital fab, whether it's a 3D printer or some other form of digital CNC, et cetera. I don't see it right outside the operating room, but I do think that the idea of uh, it being distributed around the globe where it's local, but what's local, right? You can put it on a truck and, you know, somewhere in California, but during the time of, of, I think there's more complexity than people give credit for in actually printing and validating what you're printing and cleaning all these systems you have to put to what you're producing to actually do it perioperatively. But I do think local production is something that we would probably see down the line, depending upon what the competitive what the cost is to do it elsewhere. So depends on the use case to, to drive doing it locally. So let's, before we dive into questions from the audience, I am monitoring some of those questions coming in. Uh, finally talk about, we know there's a lot of investments happening in technology outside of the OR. You have touched on some of that certainly here um, tonight, but quickly um, as we as we look to wrap up our panel, would love thoughts from each of you on what changes or advancements need to happen outside of the OR to support changes within the OR going forward. <laughs> uh, so, you know, for me, I think the biggest thing that um, COVID has taught us is access. So if I take a 30,000 foot view and look at the number one place that's being invested in right now, which is telehealth, it makes sense because the inconvenience we offer patients and the lost days of work that are required to come to a physician's office to see me or anybody on the panel is not insignificant. Whereas we could, you know, there's, there's mental uh, health benefits to having somebody at work take a phone call from a surgeon or from a physician. Uh, there's obviously the economic impact to them and their work association by staying at work and seeking healthcare is a really, really big piece. So I use telemedicine right now. So I see this as a really, really strong piece moving forward. And it, it just, it's under the umbrella term of access, if I can summarize it into one term. Rick, do you want to jump well, in next? Yeah, I, I was just going to say that one of the, you had asked us earlier, you know, what uh, challenges need to be solved by technology to move us uh, forward in the OR. And I think one of those is, is going to be to enable synthesizing 
data from MRI, CT, and making that available in the OR at the same time so that we're not, you know, if we marry the digital data from the MRI, the CT, et cetera, with the AI, then at surgery, we can place a digital mark where the ACL guide wire is going to go. And I can envision that those you make two points and you take the knee through a range of motion, you get a real-time isometry check. And then once you've dialed in what you want, a robotic arm comes in and dials in and, and places that tunnel exactly where you, the MRI has suggested in terms of the anatomy uh, that's unique, et cetera, et cetera. So I think as we can bring all of these pieces of information to the OR at the same time and have those available to use, I think that'll be a, a big, big improvement and uh, help for us. Having, um, adding to that, having standards for the sharing and uh, the sharing of data is going to be, I think, very important to start to be able to collect information from all these disparate places and start to, to study this. And I think you asked what external, and I think having some I think that's going to be a very interesting space to see how that plays out over the next couple of years. Chris, thoughts, what needs to happen outside of the OR to drive change within the OR? Yeah, I think a lot of it is actually on the patient, right? So Danny mentioned access to care, and I, I wholeheartedly agree with that. The other thing is empowering patients to better understand their problem. Right. So I think everybody, even on this panel, probably Googled certain medical conditions at some point to learn more. And, you know, that's okay, but there's a better way. So there's absolutely no reason with today's technology why you would not be able to access what is actually happening with you, provided you have the data, right? So you can upload your medical image. That image can be objectively analyzed in the cloud and you can get a result back without ever leaving your house. And similarly, your physician can get access to that. So in this world of telehealth that Danny was talking about, the patient actually comes armed with some knowledge and information and prepped for the doctor. So I think that uh, yields much better communication and, and just better care for everybody. Thanks for your thoughts on that. So we are about to move to Q&A. I have one final question and I'm going to ask you a quick lightning round question uh, before we move over. So when you think about the OR of the future, super quick from each of you, what is the most exciting thing when you think about the orthopedic OR of the future? I think that the AI uh, capabilities to actually be involved in the operating room have far-reaching effects. They can track the entire surgery. You have a bit of a black box. It can inform you when the next patient needs to be ready for the OR. They can tell the post-op recovery room, Dr. So-and-so takes 17 minutes from this point until dressing on, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, I think... uh, not just for the surgeon, but for logistics. Uh, You're going to recognize implants and tools very easily. Inventory management, cost savings, and whatnot will all be part of the AI recognizing actually what is on the surgical image throughout the entire procedure. I was just going to say, Ashley, that for me, the most exciting thing is the performance of the surgeon and how do we get there? Because we've talked about technologies that 
you know, augment your experience in the OR. But before they get to the OR, I think those are the technology that I'm really interested and excited about. And, you know, we've talked about virtual reality and the metaverse and allowing people access to unfettered and untethered opportunities to access other surgeons, other procedures, any medical device company at their discretion before they even get to the OR. So I think how we behave now as surgeons, our performance now is going to be completely different in the future. And that the performance of surgeons is is very exciting for me. I think the this the streamlined operations and the access to real feedback on outcomes related to what we're doing is going to be really exciting. I think that it's going to impact everything that we do. And I think that um, uh, it'll be great for our patients, but also it'll make the working environment that much better in terms of the the efficiencies that that we may not have to struggle with as providers. Chris, what's most exciting to you? I think I share with what the panel has mentioned. I think they hit on a lot of the highlights. I think, you know, the OR of the future is also synonymous with the surgeon of the future. So that goes to everything we've been talking about training and education and the different tools and technologies that we're going to be, you know, uh, faced with as, as practitioners, but, you know, somebody out there is developing them. And that's exciting that there are companies that are, you know, forming right now will be formed shortly that are solving the, the challenges that we've been discussing today. Excellent. So I'm going to ask you one final question before we move to questions from the audience. So with technology contributing to surgical decision-making, in one word, how will the volume of surgery be impacted? Is it going to go more surgery, less surgery, same surgery, thanks to decision-making technology? I think it's going to be, as the trend is already for some time, I think it's going to be uh, less invasive, by, I mean, by all standards. Uh, and uh, outpatient joints is just one example where oh, no, it couldn't be done, it's not safe, et cetera, et cetera, and now it's, it's routine. So I'm not sure about the volume, but I do think it's going to get uh, less and less invasive as we move forward with these technologies. Uh, I'm inclined to agree with, with Danny and Chris, and I think that there's other technologies competing with surgery that are going to have an impact broadly in terms of injectables, biologics, et cetera, that will shift the curve, at least in the total joint space. So depending on the time frame you're talking about, you never know when those breakthroughs are coming through, but I think that there's a lot that will shift the curve. Mm -hmm. So much more to discuss here. Um, and I certainly hope we have the opportunity to carry on this conversation and it's been great for the audience. We have some questions that have come in from the audience and Nancy has so kindly put the, capture them for me. So let me take a moment just to read the first question. So this comes from uh, JP Warner in the audience who asks if our panel members think that technology such as robotics, AI, et cetera, um, will reduce the cost of an episode of care. That's a tough one, right? Which is why he's asking, because first of all, you have to make the investment to develop the technology, purchase the technology and utilize it. Uh, and, you know, I'd be betting against the curve that's published every year about the expanding cost of healthcare versus inflation. So I think there's so many drivers of the cost of healthcare in the United States that 
you know, I, I think no matter how good of an innovation we're going to have, it's not going to reduce the cost of the episode of care. There's too many variables involved, unfortunately. I hope I'm wrong. I think that it's, uh, I agree with Chris. I, I think it's unlikely that it's going to decrease the cost. The question is, I think when we talk about value, is it really going to, uh, are we going to see the technology translate to substantively improved patient care and satisfaction, et cetera, et cetera, or, uh, or is the extra cost not really going to be borne out by better quality of life measures? I think that, um, I think everything is going to be assessed through a value-based lens. And I think that if you're bringing in more expensive technologies, then it's going to require improved outcomes to justify it, or you're going to have to, um, or it's made up for with increased patient flow or something in the economic model that's allowing for that evolution to occur. I think that that it's, for, and so I think for different technologies, it, it will have a different um, impact. I, I, I tend to agree with you guys though, that it's gonna be very difficult. I certainly will take the opposite view and say that I do think that it should, and we should strive to seek how new innovations are gonna impact the episode of care. You know, if we think of it, I'll use the shoulder again as an example. If augmented reality truly is going to have an impact on the episode of care, then we need to be able to collect data to show that my guide pin placement pre and post or with or in the, in the absence of AR actually made a difference to that patient's not only outcome, but their ability to provide economic value to themselves and their families. And so I think there's a lot of data that we just don't have right now to answer the question. That's what we need to strive towards. But I think innovation will help us drive towards answering those questions by collecting rich data to make sure that the cost of care isn't truly in fact impacted by these innovations. So I am going to, I'm just taking in more questions from the audience. So, um, so let's see, this one is about who, um, who is responsible, who pays? So this is coming in from our audience member, Lisa. And um, she's asking, the info showed investment from VC into advanced platforms. So this is pulling from Nancy's slides and Stefano's and Robin's conversation, I'm sure. So when we talk about AI decision-making, robotic surgery, uh, things of that nature, will the hospital systems invest in human infrastructure needed to support these systems or will industry be required to provide day-to-day -day support as they do today? Any thoughts there? Role of industry. I think from a spine perspective, you're using these advanced systems. The First of all, the surgeon expects to have you know, great support in the operating room. And that support has to come from somewhere. And I've seen it both ways. I've seen it where there is actually a tech in a hospital that's well-trained that does provide that, but probably more often than not, the, uh, the, the company is the one that sends a specialist. Now who pays for it, right? So is that bundled in the fee? Is it thought to be, you know, quote unquote free? And we, of course, know nothing's free, but I, I don't see, you know, another budget in the uh, operating room, you know, yearly annual budget dedicated for extra support for the physician, right? I, I just don't see that happening. I mean, my view on this is that the company should strive not to do that. And I think innovation should seamlessly integrate into the physician workflow where there's no extra 
uh, you know, integer required to help support a new technology. I think that's, that hasn't, that shouldn't be the quest. The quest should be to introduce a seamless technology that integrates into your workflow that requires no other thought. And that for me is true, a, a true breakthrough in innovation. So industry should strive for that. And whether it be robotics, whether it be AR, VR, AI, ML, and the technology sensors, it should be a seamless entry into the system. Thanks for addressing that. So we are going to start wrapping up. I'm just going to ask you one final uh, question about the OR of the future. And with all this talk of technology, um, there are certainly a lot of human factors um, that come into play. So as the OR becomes more and more digitized in the future, who do you think becomes obsolete first? Is it the scrub tech, the, the first assist, surgeon, anesthesiologist, another? Yeah. Dangerous question. And this is sort of what Danny was saying. I, I, if, you know, the technology is designed so well, then we all become obsolete. However, I, you know, being a skeptic here, I believe that all this advancement will result in more people in the operating room, not fewer. So that's my skeptical point. Nice. Well, I think that's a good way to wrap it up. So thank you all so much for your time, your thoughts, for sharing with the audience. There is so much to think about, so much to discuss uh, when it comes to the OR of the future. And we so appreciate you being here with us. Thank you. We truly hope you enjoyed this three-part series from the DocSF Venture event from January 2022, focusing on the OR of the future and trends in digital health funding in musculoskeletal care. We invite you to go over to docsf.health and sign up for DocSF Future and Trends in Digital Health Funding in Musculoskeletal Care. We invite you to go over to docsf.health and sign up for DocSF The Experience and join the revolution. Hey there, since we've still got your attention, we wanted to give you a little insight into what we have planned for you at DocSF The Experience, our remarkable annual event. We're planning to host DocSF Live in San Francisco on Thursday, April 28th and Friday, April 29th, 2022. And well, it's going to be extraordinary. You don't want to miss it. Here's how we described it, a DocSF venture in January 2022.